Hi, this is Carl Franklin. Richard and I are going to be in London at the NDC conference December 2nd through the 6th, and we'd love to see you there. Come see Scott Guthrie, Don Syme, Bob Martin, Dan North, Scott Allen, Mads Torgerson, and many, many more at the NDC. For more information, go to ndc-london.com. .NET Rocks episode 928 with guest Fred George. Recorded live Wednesday, November 6th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik, offering the best in developer tools and support. Online at telerik.com. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. It's Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're here at Ordev doing a live .NET Rocks in front of a huge throng of people on their devices, on, on their blue bean bags. They got bean bags. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, some of us are more excitable than others. Take it easy. It's all right. Have a coffee. Uh, always love coming to Sweden. We have a great time here. We do. But we're here to work, so let's roll the music for Better Know Framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, I've been playing around with uh, some JavaScript code that I found uh, on the internet and integrated it into a solution. This is just a, the wonderful thing about JavaScript. Yep. People write it, they put it out there, they publish it, they encourage you to steal it and modify it, and <laughs> just don't ask them for tech support. Right. Well, you've been in that boat, too. You've put code up there. I have, yeah. yeah. No, it's, it's a wonderful community. Sure. Anyway, I love the picture slideshow in Windows Media Center. Oh, yeah, that sort of fade in, slide over, How they, Yeah, it's across. called the Ken Burns effect. Ken Burns, okay. Because you, did you see this, the Civil War and jazz and all those Ken Burns PBS right. documentaries? And what he does is instead of, because he doesn't have film from the Civil War, right. he gets paintings and pictures and pans over them. And so when one character is talking, he's panning on one, and then he pans over to the other one and then pans. But just simply like a slow zoom into a picture, and then another picture comes in and fades over. Well, nice. this guy did that with JavaScript and, and two canvases, or no with, with one canvas with two images. And so one image loads in the background while another image is uh, displayed, and then they fade into each other. That's neat. And then one zooms in the other direction, one zooms out, the other zooms in. It's a in really JavaScript. wonderful effect. Yeah. Okay. How do you do this? So you go to tinyurl.com slash KenBurnsJS. You can even go there with your phone. It works on a phone. It works on an iPhone. It's really cool. Uh, Will McCougan has, uh, has put out this um, JavaScript. And by God, he figured it out. Uh, and it's great. And, and uh, I've, I've modified it to uh, run with uh, ASP.NET in the background, generating dynamically a random list of images that uh, gets shown full screen in a, you know, 
and uh, you press F11, and the browser goes full screen, and it looks just beautiful. Wow. So, yeah, it works so, great. So now, I mean, in a, in a browser. That in whole, a browser. What used to be a media center. What used to be in media center. I love it. Yeah. That's really cool. It's really cool. So there you go. That's the tip of the day. Know it, learn it, love it. Richard, who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 912, and that's the one we did with Woody Zool and his team yeah. on mob programming. He's here, isn't he? He is here, I saw yes. him yesterday. I saw him hither and yon. And this is a great comment. It's from uh, Ramon Garcia Perez, and he says, Aha, now I know what it's called, mob programming. Who would have thought? Between the summer and fall of 2012, as part of a master's in software engineering at RIT, a team of four of us that later became a team of five, working on a course project on Connect for Windows, we used to have some sort of stand-up meeting twice a week. We also tried to do it with code reviews, pair programming, and TDD. As it was required to do weekly post-mortems, retrospectives, of what we did the previous week and reflect to the class the lessons we learned, we discovered that working in such environments where only one person was typing the driver, and the others were reviewers of the produced solution, the navigators, we were able to produce better solutions and documentation. We used the projector, whiteboards, and the paper and pencil while working. Uh, one thing that was difficult for us is that we didn't use standardized practices, such as naming conventions or styles, which led to driver switching in a minimum. So they avoided switching drivers because the coding styles were so different for each other. Right. Uh, later on in the project, we were using that approach to almost everything for documentation, design, coding, and testing. Our project was very small and short, and there were people coming and going. Mob programming is really beneficial when it engages participation and interaction. We were a very diverse team, which was key. As mentioned by your guests, it helps make stronger decisions on the project. Great show as always. So there you go. Other people doing mob programming. They just didn't know the name. Who knew it was called mob programming? Yeah, it's cool. Uh, Ramon, thanks so much for your comment. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Windows Phone 7 and 8. We've got them for Windows 8, Android, and iOS. And those apps were built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And with that, I would like to introduce our guest, Fred George. Fred has been writing code for over 44 years in, by his count, over 70 languages. He's delivered projects and products across his career, and in the last decade alone has worked with the U.S., India, China, and the U.K. He started ThoughtWorks University in Bangalore, India, based on a commercial programming training program he developed in the 90s. An early adopter of object orientation and agile, Fred continues to impact the industry with his leading-edge ideas, most recently advocating programmer anarchy. Oh, and he still writes code. <laughs> Welcome. Hey, it's good to talk to you again, Fred. Thank you. Thank you. Programmer anarchy. Really? Don't we already have that? Isn't that the nature of programmers, to be anarchists? In fact, that's what we've been trying to do, is get them away from anarchy for so long. Yeah, and I think we're doing the wrong thing. Uh, I think <laughs> when left to their own devices, they tend to make better decisions than uh, their managers do. Uh, really? Oh, Wow. Where were you t 20, 30 years ago when I needed you on <laughs> well, my side? Well, probably doing the same thing you were doing, uh, needing me as well. Uh, okay. Nice. Discuss. Let's, let's take, d dive deeper into this. Do we need to define anarchy? Like, an I think there's a negative connotation to anarchy. Sure. Which I kind of like. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the core definition of anarchy, if you look at the first definition of dictionary, it's about basically having your leaders and your organization done from within, not 
Not no an organization rules. imposed from the outside. Yeah, no okay. imposed rules. Um, and then they talk about, yeah, I'm trying to distort the governments and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. That's your second definition. Okay. Uh, but in the first definition, it's, it's le intrinsic leadership or leadership from within? It's actually just organization from within. Okay. Uh, the idea is, you know, is a team or a people, set of people like to organize themselves. So we're socially motivated to work together unless we're true sociopaths. Right. Um, so is this sort of um, allowing the chaos to shape the order. Well, the, the people want order in their lives, so they're gonna, yeah. they're going to try to organize around that. Uh, yeah. So they'll pick their natural leaders. They'll pick their natural spokespeople. They'll pick the sort of the, the cheerleaders will kind of emerge as well. Um, but you know, we make a mistake. I think sometimes looking at looking at this group, which really understands each other quite well, and and trying to oppose an organization from the outside. Uh, with those outside forces, oh, you must be the team leader because you've got more gray hair than he does. So therefore, right. you must be the team lead. And, and, and basically, leadership is something you have to be given by your team. It's, it's something that uh, you're empowered by your team to do that sort of role. Just because you have the title doesn't necessarily mean it's going to happen. Right. Well, isn't the problem, one of the problems with developers is that while they may have a lot going on cognitively, you know, socially, the last people to sort of step up for themselves and say, you know, this is what... I, you know, this this is the person I think should be our leader. Maybe, uh, do we, what am I trying to say here, Fred? That that socially not strong. Oh well, you're tend typically. to say more introverts. I think yeah. as programmers than extroverts. Uh, but introverts, when they're talking about something they're passionate about, and programming is certainly what they're passionate about, uh, they tend to open up more, especially with each yeah. other. So I think when a group of typical introverts, yeah, you're going to see quite a bit of communication occurring because yeah. uh, they feel comfortable with each other. They, they, they know where each other's coming from. I found that code reviews in the organizations I were working in got dramatically better when we got all the managers out of the room. Like, I, I, you know, to some degree, you're always putting on a show for people who do your reviews and appraisals. Right. Uh, you can never really get past that point. Um, and so part of anarchy is let's just dump those guys. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. Have them walk the plank, right? Well, yeah, and I've, I've gone to a couple of organizations now where we literally did dismiss the project managers. We did make them redundant. Uh, mm. So they were gone. Uh, but then, I mean, there is stuff to be managed. Project yes. still has to be managed. Well, if you, if you look at what a, a project manager typically does, you, he plays a lot of different roles in theory. I mean, right. first of all, he's a clerk. He's supposed to keep track of things. Yep. I mean, Kent back in his original XP book called them clerks. I mean, he didn't try to make anything fancy like iteration managers. He called them clerks because there is just a clerical aspect of the role. It's yeah. to keep track of what we're working on. But you also have this role I would call ambassador, the guy who's sort of interfacing to the rest of the world on yeah. behalf of the team. But, but I kind of like the word ambassador better than manager. Manager says, I own responsibility. I'm going to tell you what to do. Right. Ambassadors, well, they represent your country. So you know, it's nice to have somebody representing your team out there and doing this work for you. So ambassador role is something they, that we, in uh, theory, have put on product managers, which, yes, you need some external speaking skills, and you need to be able to probably take a shower once a day. Yeah. Uh, but these <laughs> sort of things are kind of, kind of things ambassadors do. Uh, then you have the core of the coach, you know, the person who's going to mentor and coach the team. Uh, we, again, we think the project manager has to be that person. Uh, and, and you think about it, programmers that are mentored by a manager move their careers to management because that's what he's advising them to do. Right. And that may not be the right career guidance for somebody. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're, you're better off picking your own mentor, which is probably more or less a colleague that maybe knows some things you don't know that you want to learn from. So again, one of these roles that you know, we assign to the project manager, but in fact could be handed to somebody else. 
And finally, there's this kind of a role I got to call concierge. It's kind of the guy that does things for the team. Uh, very much like the hotel concierge is going to make sure you got, you got your towels and everything. Right. Interesting. Uh, but saying all these things are in one person, and he's going to be the best guy, the best leader, the best concierge, the best ambassador, the best mentor in one role, it's just fallacious. It's just, mm. it's very unlikely. I, I, yeah, I've actually had seen, have people talk to me about CVs or for project managers listing all these things out. It says, I'm having trouble finding this guy. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, if you ever find one, you know, you know certainly you know, hold on to him because he, he's the only one in the world. Mm. <laughs> yeah. and I, I mean, I have had great project managers, the kind that my team demanded, but typically it was they were great ambassadors. Yes. Uh, and the big thing that we were measuring was that they, they decreased the number of interruptions of the developers, that they, they created that buffer right. so those guys could get their work done. And it's playing also the concierge role. It gets you things you need when you need them without yeah. having to worry about it. You can throw, throw a problem in their laps, walk away, know it gets done. And yeah, to Richard's point, take when things are going on in the company that need your attention, they step in away and deflect those things away. Yeah. And, and you also, your great managers have never made, made commitments on behalf of the team. They always go back to the team and ask about that. Yes. And, but there's way many more that do the opposite. Commit to you because they get pressure. They feel pressure. They want to be successful. So they make commitments on behalf of the team and come back and tell you, sorry, you didn't have any choice in the matter. This is what I did. Mm -hmm. Ambassadors can't get away with that. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Oh. Ambassadors just represent the team and then take information back to the team to be... And try to understand, help understand that get two sides together and whatever it needs to be, but he's not going to make commitments on behalf of the team. Right. Um, so so uh, it's really interesting. When I think about your, you know, your message here, programmer anarchy, and let's say you know, a, a company wants to bring you in to talk to the team, wouldn't the managers be immediately scared? I mean... Yes. Uh, so... <laughs> So how does that happen? I mean, what's that awkward moment like? You know, when they well, well, I, I think that's what I kind of enjoy going to conferences, and you can sort of give the presentation. You see the guys are have lights in their eyes. They're the programmers, and the guys are trying to crawl their seats. Those are the managers. <laughs> uh, yeah. But uh, you know, and frankly, I've only worked in environments where we were servicing our internal clients yeah. right. uh, with Anarchy. So in, at Forward Internet Group, where we did this originally in London. Uh, we were servicing our internal clients. About 20% of the staff was programmers. Uh, they kind of defined the culture overall of the corporation, but there was only 20% of them. Uh, similarly, when I worked at the Daily Mail, we were doing uh, web apps for, the, for our internal business again. Um, so we hadn't really had to go out and, and sell this concept to, to uh, say, a consulting client from outside. Yeah. Uh, now, no groups that do that, but they don't call it anarchy. No, uh, of course. That's uh, what I'm saying. It's like, how do you even get in the door with a name like that? You, yeah. you don't. You um, don't. Yeah. But that's, that's kind of why it, it raises the attention level about it's something sure. different. And so that's why we, we named it. Uh, and I got to say, I, I didn't come up with Anarchy. I named it. Uh, that's my, my claim to fame. Yeah. Uh, but it was something the team was already doing sure. that I was observing. And, and it was working extraordinarily well. Uh, it was like, if it works well, let's keep doing it. Let's figure out what it is. So, and I guess if you called it programmer self-organization, it just wouldn't be sexy. Really. Not as sexy. No, I know yeah. a group that does external consulting. They call themselves an innovation center. They nice. go in there and, and understand what yawn. you... But it's, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a yawner, but at least it doesn't get kicked out the door. I mean, <laughs> yeah. You live to fight another this, day. This team that was self-organized, is, is everybody a developer? Is everybody right? Everybody is a developer. And they okay. will go into a client and they may, they may put on badges that have titles with them right. to make mm -hmm. the customer feel comfortable, but in, internally they're completely flat. So... Did different people in that group take on the concierge role, the ambassador role? They, they like, talk like they do. Okay. The customer, right? But so how do these things actually get done? 
I don't understand what get done in respect. I uh, guess, you, you know, the ambassador role is a point of contact for external people. Yeah, so the team decides who's going to be the guy who's going to take one for the team and have to talk to the customer today. Right. Uh, so, uh, and it sort of rotates around. Yeah, I think, in fact, I thought Switzerland has the same sort of arrangement, I believe. They have like seven prime seven chief guys right from the regions. They have to name one of the prime ministers so somebody comes into town, you know, yeah. who to talk to. But they yeah, rotate go talk to that. him. But you talk, rotate it. But it's right. like, yeah, I rotate get, the jobs that nobody wants, but, you know, the basically. ones that people are good at and they tend to stick with. Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting book that sort of talks about the same phenomena going back into the 1700s, and that's one called uh, The Invisible Hook. It's a... So about the social organization of pirates, right? Because yeah. there was no rule book for pirates. This is what you have to do, pirates, and I'm going to appoint you the captain, and you're going to be the first mate, and there was no rule book. And you would see them morph their organization. If you're trying to get the ship from point A to point B, you know, there's somebody who organizes a group and gets people pulling behind the same thing. He was in charge. But when we're tracking that merchant ship, you need this crazy guy waving the saber and jumping over the other side. Whole different guy. Well, that's sort of the essence of small business in a nutshell, isn't it? I mean, you've got a limited number of resources and uh, so many jobs that have to be done. And, hey, who wants to, who wants to run to the bank, you know, and you know, do this thing? Who wants to whatever? I, I think startups start out in anarchy and then they feel some pressure sometimes for investors to start naming CTOs sure. and and chief architects and all these other roles, uh, which they should resist. But they, yeah. they always have those titles because every time they have to interface with the outside world, it's like, I want to talk to your CTO. Yes, but, you know, I mean, I, right now I'm, I'm in a startup. Uh, my contract has fancy titles in it. My business card says developer. Right. It's the only thing I want to convey to the outside world. We're developers. And if you want to challenge me about that, I'd love to have that conversation. Sure. Yeah, well, it would be interesting, the guy, you know, I've been in this situation where it's like, no, we only want to talk to a CTO. Say, like, wouldn't you like to talk to the guy who actually made this thing work? You know, we don't I, have to hang I, that title I, I'm on I'm perfectly it. happy to tell them there is no CTO. Yeah. And, and, and uh, he gets this quizzical look in his face and says, how do you run like that? I say, well, let me tell you a story. And then <laughs> several hours later, I finished. Yeah. <laughs> good, and good things happen. Uh, I run into this situation in organizations often where there's only one stack of promotion. And so, you know, if you want to, ad quote, advance in the company, you're forced into management. The guy with the best technical skills ends up being a manager. Yeah, and I think that's, that's partly based upon some cultural aspects. Mm -hmm. uh, it's partly, partly based upon salaries. Uh, most companies have understood a long time ago that a parallel technical track made sense. I mean, yeah. I, I grew up in IBM. We had a parallel technical track with the same pay scales as a management track. But still, there was a little more prestige associated with the manager title, yeah. uh, even, even then. Uh, and I think you sort of have to fight against that. And that's what we've done uh, in the organization. So of course, I, London startup, where we came out of was we didn't really have an organization like this to start mm -hmm. with. Um, so we kind of grew organically, and we never put the structure in place. Uh, when I went to the Mail Online, uh, yeah, we had some official titles, but we went into the team, we basically wiped out the titles. We found team leads and project managers and scrum masters, and it's like we're flattening out the organization. Um, come play with us. Well, some guys decided to, and some guys decided to leave. Well, Fred, isn't this an ongoing problem? That we, who makes the best manager of developers? Is it one of our own? Is it a developer who couldn't quite make it as a developer? Or is it a, one of our best developers who's senior, but is, you know, who makes that? Or is it a non-developer manager? Well, to some degree, you've got to watch out for the trap here. It's what role are you talking about manager in? If he's talking about a guy who's coaching or mentoring you, 
that's going to be somebody you feel comfortable sitting down to. He's got good one-on-one skills. Yeah. Lets you, you know, pushes you in the right direction, but lets you sort of make your own mistakes. Um, I think that sort of role is, is a natural role. In fact, there's good training associated with people who have interest in doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a good way to train a relative to that. You'll find that if people get a chance to pick their own mentors, if they choose someone who keeps telling what to do and walks away, they'll pick somebody else. Right. Uh, again, external force coming in saying, you're the manager, therefore you're the coach for all these people. Uh, not a good system. Not a good system. Right. Uh, well, and, and people tend to find, given an opportunity, they will find their own advisor, their own coach. You know, there, yes. there are guys that are good at helping folks and folks that, that appreciate their help. You, uh, just w- watching how people work together, you sort of realize everybody sort of comes to you to check on how to solve certain problems. Yeah, the informal organization, even when the managers are in place, the informal organization, if you watch it, you can discern what the real organization is. There, there's so many people called gatekeepers. These are people that seem to have all the, all the tidbits of information. Right. Uh, Everybody seems to ask, if I want to know what's going on, or ask, I ask this guy, he seems to know, or at least knows who knows. Mm-hmm. We call them gatekeepers in the social literature. Right. Um, so you look at the informal organization, you'll see these sort of patterns. And it has to be almost sometimes a, a black market of these people because the formal organization is, doesn't endorse their roles. Hmm. Yeah, in some ways it's almost kept secret. You have, to, you have to be an insider enough to actually figure out who the gatekeepers are. Exactly. And I, uh, I love I worked with an organization where, where it took me a while to figure out no product ships successfully without this guy touching it. Doesn't matter that he wasn't on the project. That, you know, none of that mattered. There was no formal title. He was not a, quote, senior person in any stretch of imagination. But every time someone tried to push a piece of software out the door without his help, they failed. He, he just held certain keys. And, it, and it, it wasn't even malicious. It was just he knew how all this stuff worked. When you tried to go around him, you broke things. Yep, the knowledge was there. And I think the thing is, an organization does know who these people are. If you mm-hmm. went into a team and said, who's the best database programmer? It's not the guy with the title of the best database programmer. They'll know who it is. Right. Um, and so that's the nice thing about self-organizing. When I need help, I know the right guy to go to. Uh, I don't have to use the official channels uh, as such. So are we really just trying to align the official channels to the the ambient or the... the, the, uh, the I think we want to acknowledge that law. these are really roles and not jobs. Right. I think yeah. that it was easy to t- put titles in place and, and anoint people in full-time jobs. But I think we acknowledge that there are certain key roles associated with the team. And they morph over time. I right. think it's important to have architects' skills in the team to start with. Mm-hmm. And then delivery skills at the end. And you can morph it throughout the middle. So, but some guy comes to your company for a job. What do you do? You just say, you are just an employee. Just go in there and see what happens. Pretty much. We really? say, we're, we're, looking for, we're looking for somebody who's talented. We're looking for somebody who wants to learn. Yep. Uh, so, we'll, we'll find out what your job is later. You just get in your there. Your job is developer. You're going to be yeah. writing code. And yeah. he says, well, I'm going to write front or back end code. We don't know. Uh, yeah. We don't care. Do you care? If you really care, then I'm not sure we're the right place for you. Yeah, okay. uh, I'm, I'm finding more and more that the guys I want working with me are passionate and, uh, and, and interact with the team well. And everything else can be fixed. And I, I see the same thing. I think being a self-learner uh, and having the passion. I mean, I think Kent Beck in his original XP book, in his bibliography, has something along the lines of enthusiasm makes up for lack of experience. Yeah. And it was, he's quoting a, a 1950s book called The New Bride's Handbook. <laughs> and it was like, who reads these things? But Kent Beck. Um, <laughs> but I, I, that lesson takes a heart. I've had really bright people who weren't motivated, and right. I would swap them out in a heartbeat for somebody who wants to be there. Yeah. Uh, 
and wants to be there, interacts with the team well. Because figuring out technology these days, it's just not that hard, you know, if you're motivated. And, and this is a, kind of the key role for the concierge that's kind of the dark side of it. And that is a team will, team may not like somebody on their team. Right. And you have to respect that and kick that guy out. I mean, yeah. you can vote off, get voted off the island. It's, it's really interesting how destructive that is internally. Right. And, and as a leader, by the time you finally clued in and said, okay, we need to move this person out, everybody else is, where the hell have you been sick for the past six months? Like they're questioning your intelligence because you didn't move faster on and that. And you know, I, I, you, when you mentioned this, you know, somebody who's smart but not motivated or smart but not enthusiastic or just negative... Right, we were talking about this, Richard. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of seven or eight people just popping <laughs> to mind that I've met over the years, and they're really smart. But you know, you ask them a question, and you know, the typical Nick Burns your computer guy comes to mind, like move. Yeah, you know, like, like, what are you an idiot? You know, just like, all right, I'll show you. It's good. Jeez, oh my God, you're yeah. such an idiot. Oh, jeez. Well, there was a Harvard Business Review article a few years ago that talked about, they actually measured the impact of one bad apple in the bunch. Right. Yeah. And it takes, takes down 10 to 12 people. Yeah. Sure. And, and when you're a co-located team, we are really working in that close proximity versus sitting in cubes or offices, mm-hmm. you, it exacerbates the situation. You yeah. have to react really quickly or the whole team goes down very quickly. Right. And you're right. You're, you lose the respect of, of, of your peers if you're not make, acting on that and thing. And the inverse is true, that a, uh, an influencer... A single influencer can have an influence on other people, which can make them influencers as well. And, you know, that can spread. I mean, the social literature also talks about the, the value of having a certain level of disruptors in your team. You know, people yeah. that sort of do, do question the norms. Yep. Uh, in a very nice fashion, but, you know, question the norms it, and how valuable they are in the team. Sure. Yeah, guys that are willing to, to question yes. the, all the assumptions. And they sometimes can be caustic but with good intent and where people appreciate the, the value of that. If right. they understand that people understand the value, the, the tone of the message can be, about, can be caustic and yeah. still, still gets yeah, across. Yeah, as long as the person isn't caustic for the sake of it, right? Yeah. And, it's, you know, it's, you know, also personal willing, attacks are one thing. Attacks on technology, that's certainly fair. Something and there's else. a test for that, right? Have they ever said, oh, I was wrong about that. Let's reverse course, right? Yep. It's, it's can they be testable. persuaded? Right. Well, Richard, you know what time it is. Ah, uh, it must be that happy time again. That's right. It's time to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Awesome. That's right. No joke today. <laughs> you just, too tired. You just went straight through, did you? It's jet lag, man. Nice. Uh, but before I tell you who the winner is, I need to tell you that Telerik Icinium enables you to develop, test, and publish iOS and Android apps from a single code base using only HTML5 and JavaScript. Nice. Fred's going... Wow. Hmm, impressive. The new release of Icinium will allow .NET developers to utilize all of this goodness from within Visual Studio. The capabilities include comprehensive back-end as a service, so it runs in the cloud, integrated support for Kendo UI, as well as jQuery mobile, and integrated testing and deployment capabilities, making Icinium a robust end-to-end mobile app development platform for .NET developers. Telerik Icinium, with its new Visual Studio extension, is available on a subscription basis and is now part of the Telerik DevCraft Ultimate Collection. Start a free 30-day trial of Icinium with support at icinium.com slash DNR. And don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks. Absolutely. All right, buddy, who's our winner? And today's winner is Dmitro Yevstevsky from the Ukraine. Congratulations, Dmitro. 
Yeah. Nice. And Dimitri wins a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, and that is almost everything Telerik does in one box. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, uh, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members, and every show we give away stuff. And every December we give away $5,000 worth of technology. Coming to up. One lucky member of the fan club. And Fred George, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology right now, what would you get? New Mac Pro. Nice. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Retina display. <laughs> Is five grand enough? Well, it'll get you started. It'll yeah. get you a couple of cores. <laughs> wow. And the S and some SSDs. You can you can load a Mac but it, Pro. It's up. art. It's just it's, if it just sits there, it looks pretty. It's, it's yeah. fine. <laughs> I like their new. Uh, you know, you're not talking about the MacBook. You're talking about the Pro. The, the column. Oh yeah, the column. The, yeah, column. the column with the oh, triangular aluminum core. So what would you do with that? Besides, look at it. Yeah. Uh, pro probably play Skyrim at a higher resolution. Uh -huh. <laughs> Skyrim at Retina resolutions. Oh yeah. Oh man. Yeah. You know, not since the Cube has has Apple made quite as pretty a machine as that oh, yeah. cylinder. I I think it beats the Cube, but it's, yeah. it is gorgeous. It is yeah. absolutely gorgeous. I'm, I'm with you. Lovely, lovely machine. But yeah, you're right. That five grand is gone. <laughs> Apple will take your money every oh, yeah. time. That's, that's probably entry if I'm lucky. Well, no, and now it's the displays, right? It's the 35-inch 4K displays. Are, mm. They're yep, three yep. grand have, a crack, I have, too. I have my, I have my own one of those, too. We'll have to, we'll have yeah. to see. What maybe, I want. Maybe is, two. What I want oh, is a, a good 4K video camera. Yeah. That's what I want. That's a couple of bucks. It's not that hard to spend five grand these days. Yeah, that would be over five grand. Yeah, all the 4K gear, this ultra-high-resolution stuff is expensive. I wonder if it's one of those things you're going to just leave in the box for 25 years and then sell it on eBay for a million dollars. Actually, <laughs> probably not. No. <laughs> technology doesn't seem to work now that, that way. Now that I've said it, no. no. You know, yeah, I've screwed but, it up. I mean, it happens with cars. Yeah. Somebody finds, like, a they, they, they were about to tear down this old building in a... In a uh, uh, a small town in, in the U.S., and it was a car dealership, and some, they'd left a couple of a brand new 1950s cars, and those cars are worth a ton because they have zero miles on right. them. They right. It's just, that's fascinating to me, right? It's well, those old. are cars, but how many people, okay, uh, if you want to buy my TRS-80 Model 4, yeah. you just send me an email. We'll <laughs> see how many people respond to that one. <laughs> you, you will be surprised. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even though you can run an emulator on your PC for it now. Yeah. yeah, it doesn't work the same way, it seems. All right, I want to jump back into this thing because I, I, I am fascinated by uh, this idea of allowing teams self-organize. It seems to me that you're setting a sort of minimum skill level that's relatively high. Like, I think it would be fairly challenging for junior developers to thrive in this environment. Well, I mean, I said the same thing about extreme programming you know, right. in Agile in the late 90s, which turned out not to be true. It actually right. works really well because it has high feedback cycles. Um, I would say anybody who's gotten through high school has figured out how to organize themselves in social groups. I don't uh, know. You've seen some of those high school students lately? Uh, yep, yep. <laughs> I didn't learn to organize myself until I was 21, man. <laughs> well, fortunately, most of our programs are at least 21. Um, yeah. But yeah, you, you, I think you see all the roles in, in social organizations, and by the time people are in grade school, you're starting right, to see the same right. sort of dimensions in that. You definitely want to stir the right people into the team mm -hmm. uh, and watch the team at some level to see if the right things are happening. So if, you, if no leader is emerging, you probably need to stir a new leader in there. Right. Or if there's contention for leadership, maybe you need to pull one of the guys out. Uh, 
but you're always putting in other skills as well. You're always inserting the database guy when you need a database expert, or the performance mm -hmm. guy when you need a performance expert. Uh, the idea is to inject these people in the team. Don't, don't start with a team and say, this is my team, I'm going to lock them in for the next six months, you're going to have to deliver. Uh, this is just nonsense. You don't need to worry about that either. Well, and you bring up an interesting point, which is typically, in my mind, the reason that you had external forces pressing on you is that you have a fixed deadline, a fixed budget, like these sorts of things that require management, quote unquote. And, you know, we know that management doesn't help those situations, actually help create those situations right. rather than fix them. Um, I mean, I've never had that issue in, in, my, in my years as an Agile consultant, partly because expectations when you go in as an Agile consultant is, I'm going to deliver the same rate as a waterfall. And I can beat the crap out of waterfall. I, mean, I can go so much faster than a waterfall. Sure. Uh, so it's never been an issue, because I, always, always, I can always hit, put, hit schedules they put in place uh, that are put in place around waterfall, just by building a team and tuning a team around what I'm trying sure. to deliver. Uh, but you know, over time, of course, that's not going to work. You're going to, you're going to have to have some expectations. Uh, I think one of the things we really did a nice job with at Ford was we got to the point where we were doing almost continuous delivery. Right. So it wasn't a matter of having to set expectations, which you could get in six months. You're getting a steady stream of things all the time. Mm -hmm. And that established that same level of trust that you were trying to get with this contract mode. Right. Of saying, you promise to deliver, cross your heart, hope to die, firstborn, et cetera, if I deliver in six months. Uh, much, much better to sort of give a continuous feed of information. Then they say, oh, you know what, that idea I had in there, it's, I don't think it's a bad idea, I want to change that. And it starts being much more an iterative actions. Yeah, yeah, isn't that what really happened with Agile? What happened with Agile is you built up enough trust that nobody cared about the deadlines anymore because you were delivering value. And, and to some degree, anarchy is just taking Agile and, and taking some of the practices and keep pushing them and pushing them. Right. What drove us to a large degree was we wanted to deliver faster and faster, and mm -hmm. then faster. And it got to the point where we were pushing something new into production every three and a half minutes. <laughs> um, and that eliminates a lot of roles, eliminates a lot of checkoffs. Uh, it, it's, it sort of pushes responsibility into making your system more robust as yep. architecturally. Automation and, everywhere. Yeah, to basically get that, get that huge speed increase. Um, and so it drove us to do some of these actions. It wasn't we walked in one day and said, we hate managers, let's get rid of them. It was true, but we didn't think about it that way. But it was, let's go faster, let's go faster, let's go faster. And, and the process of going faster is removing impediments, and eventually management is an impediment? And, and to some degree, oh, yes. I mean, to some degree, it's a checkpoint. It says, I have, to, I have to stop and go get somebody to sign something off. And the right. sign off is a serial process. And the lean guys know serial processes are the, are the death to, to just-in-time manufacturing. Right. Fred, how, how far does anarchy scale? Well, I would say it actually scales definitely because it's anarchy. <laughs> uh, because to some degree, one of the, one of the things we recognize with anarchy is we, we, will, we, we will have disagreements and we will not resolve them. It's having somebody to have to resolve agreements would push the structure back in place. Yeah, okay. And so we're very comfortable with saying, you, you, go for, you four guys go off and build something. And, oh, you're building in a language these other guys are not using? Okay. Yeah. I can't make you not do that. Now, there may be bragging rights at the other end of this thing about who did it better. Uh, but I'm not in there to tell you not to do something. What's interesting that what you just said is we're comfortable not having the answers. Yes. We're not, not having an answer right away. We're it, comfortable it, not having to make a decision early. Yeah, not uh, having to make a decision. Even if we have to implement it two, two different ways. But remember, I'm implementing an incredibly rapid pace. Right. Uh, if I choose a language or, or a database that doesn't really work out, I'm going to figure it out very quickly. And I'm going to be like, yep, you're right. I should have used a different database. Or, yes, this language is not ready for prime time. So when I mean scale, I mean, what size team can handle this kind of 
Well, I think the team size tends to be six, six to ten people as goes team size. I think right, ten's right. actually too large. Yeah. Uh, but six, you know, six seems to be around the sweet spot, five to six. Uh, so you just have lots of little teams that are running lots that size. Lots of little teams. Got it. And I think at that point you scale as far as you want to scale. Okay. Uh, I certainly know organizations, a uh, training firm that does uh, scale to about 200 people running this way. Uh, and they're all about just get the code out the door because it's, it's money in terms of time to market for us as well. They build things in their system like they're constantly pushing through small transactions to make sure everything's working. Sure. So they're not doing acceptance tests anymore. They're not doing unit tests anymore. They're just pushing the code out there and what, helping the monitoring catches any problems. But they're confident that if it's working for $10 transactions, the $100,000 transaction will work right. when I need it to. And that's a much more robust design overall by having that sort of system. But with 200 people, that's probably 25 or 30 teams. Yes. But just feeding them the workload seems interesting. Like how do you split up the work and get it to all these different groups? Well, in the case of a trading firm, you have uh, individual traders that have little guys surrounding them. Right. Everybody, everybody's their own little world, and their own little thing. Uh, right. So maybe there's not a lot of interplay <coughs> between these teams. There is informally. Uh, so good ideas kind of float around because right. everybody's pretty close to each other. But there's no formal recognition that says, oh, you have to do it this way, or this is your language you have to be doing right. with today. So you may have some sort of focal point organizing, or not organizing, but representing. You but you don't have somebody telling them all what to do. You certainly have the need, still need for a customer in this environment. A yeah. customer that has some idea of what they want. Sure. It could be a fuzzy idea, but you still have that requirement to have some idea of what you're trying to accomplish. Uh, and that's yeah, very powerful. I think you, you always need a vision. vision right. I call it a visionary, actually. It maybe it's a customer, maybe it's somebody on the team. Uh, you certainly look at GitHub. Some of the visionaries for what they're building are the programmers themselves. Mm -hmm. right. They're kind of cheating because since they're building tools for programmers, everybody's an analyst of their own. Yeah. It probably could be one of them. And it certainly could be one of them. I've yeah. certainly seen different guys arise. Certainly, I've, I've done some rebuilding of systems and for various clients, and sometimes the guy who built the previous system is the visionary. He right. knows it inside and out. He knows what went wrong. He knows how he wants to get it fixed this time. Right. He becomes a visionary. And some people naturally fit into that role, too. That I, think it's, I think it's something. If they don't exist, you keep looking for one. It's right. one of those yeah. things that occasionally I've had to play that role myself because I can't find one. But you find somebody that's got a bigger idea than they can do. Yes. You know, they, they think really, every so often you have someone who just thinks large. Absolutely. Because and, and, that steers you in the right direction. Because I think without a visionary, then you're, you'll be writing a lot of code, getting out there very quickly, and not sure what it does. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's, there's always this dance between the head-down work of building this stuff and the head-up work of, are we building the right thing? Exactly. And you have to have somebody at least that believes they're building the right thing. and can yeah. convince them. They may be wrong, and again, that's some nice feedback, but you don't want somebody up there saying, or leading the charge, saying, we're going to take that hill. Yeah. It may not be the right hill, but, you know, we're going to take that hill and everybody will follow them up there and be yeah, very and productive. There's, and there's a, there's a strength to an organization to always get up the hill, but I also have enough leadership to go, okay, that was the wrong hill, that yeah. right hill's over there. <laughs> and I think that's where anarchy is, is, especially an empowered anarchy team will point out to this guy and says, dude, that's the wrong hill. It's the, yeah. it's the next one. You know, that's where the flag is, you know. Uh, I get, yeah, I think you get this collective wisdom for leadership. And you see it in the trading firm. The, the line between the traders and the programmers started to blur. Right. Because the programmers were getting ideas of new trading strategies. The traders were getting a better idea of what, it, what could be done in software and not done right. in software. And you had this blending of skills. And I think that's, that's what you're going to see. Uh, because developer versus customer, that line may actually tend to blur as well. Sure. Well, you always have that battle of the customer doesn't know what a computer could do for them. And the developer doesn't know enough about the domain to know what it should do for them. 
Yet as programmers, I can guarantee you every if statement I write, I'm making domain decisions, whether yeah. I know the answer or not. That's right. Uh, and I almost guarantee you that they're making decisions as business guys about what's feasible and not feasible as programmers mm -hmm. can do. And they're not always right. Right. And, but I also like this idea of you don't, you don't need to know in advance. You know, it's not a bad thing to get code out there and get good feedback to steer yourself. Well, and, and that's kind of where, where in Anarchy we kind of got rid of acceptance tests and a large degree unit tests because those are both things that are there to find defects early as a feedback yeah. process. Right. But yeah. if you can get the code out to real people, that's a much better feedback process. And I don't have to spend time writing those tests. If you, but the main thing is having mechanisms so that you get good feedback from production. Yeah, and I, and I think in forward we, where we did the Anarchy the first time, we had business domains that had fast feedback. Uh, we're doing Google advertising. 20 minutes after you get an ad up there, you know whether it's any good or not. Right. Uh, that's lovely type of feedback. It brings to mind Dan North's uh, being okay with uncertainty. Yeah. And yeah. how humans just are naturally not okay with uncertainty. And, you know, you're saying, hey, you know, we don't understand the answer to this. Right? We don't know the answer to this question right now. Or we don't have a solution for this. That's fine. We'll, we'll have that. Let's just not, let's not hold up everything else till we get that, you know. And Which I, is something a manager would do. And I would say some of the 20-year-olds are much more daring about, you know, let's try this and see what happens because sure. they're, they're less afraid of the consequences sure. versus the 20-year manager who has his reputation online with right. the yeah. CEO. Well, no 20-year manager says, watch this. Yeah. That's hey, a 20-year-old thing. <laughs> you, you, last I words. do find these guys once in a while, but they're the guys who are on the fast track to being the CIO or CEO because right. uh, they really are still taking chances with their career. The guy who stopped taking chances with his career, you want to get him out of there. He's not helping. He's him. leveled off. He's leveled off. His, his ability to take chances, his ability to see new technologies is completely missing. But that's also presuming that a company wants to take chances, like is looking for something new. I, I, I think if you go to the CEOs, you will find them almost uniformly saying, I want to do that. Right. Um, when I've got a chance to get to C-level executives, you talk about Agile, and even talk about anarchy, not necessarily saying anarchy, um, they're like, oh my goodness, thank goodness. I've been trying to get this organization to change for years. Right. And you're finally telling me how to do that. Those guys are bright. They get it. They understand Agile is a social change to the organization. Yes. yes. It's not a tactical change. It's yep. not a language thing. It's a social change. Yep. And the guys most impacted by it seem to have been the managers. Uh, programmers still write code. You right. know? Uh, testers probably maybe still test. But managers, their role just completely flipped. Yep. And it gets, yeah, it gets torn apart. Well, you get back to this idea of the old developer becoming a manager. Uh, right. Are they still, is that actually a good outcome? Are they still useful in that form? Well, I, I actually do enjoy taking uh, guys who are now architects and have written coding years or taking you know, managers who used to be great coders, mm -hmm. putting back into the programming role. Right. Uh, first of all, the languages are way more fun than it was than it was back in C days. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and they've shown they got conceptual skills and probably leadership skills. Right. And I want that in those teams, you know. And they will, the team is likely to elect the lead, a, a, former man, a former manager as the leader of the team because he just seems to get people to work together if he was good at it. Plus, it shows he's got cred, right? Yes. Uh, you know, he knows, he knows how to get things done because he's, he work, he's walked the management halls a little bit. Yeah. So he makes a great concierge, makes a great ambassador. Uh, and I think you're putting these guys back in the role is way easier than taking some 20-year-old and trying to teach him, you know, management techniques to work with, how right. to work with executives. And or to assume everybody who graduates out of a computer science program has great conceptual skills. I'd much rather get a guy with conceptual skills and teach him Ruby or Clojure than vice versa. Yeah. Well, I also think it sort of lights them up, too, to get back to coding. 
And I see a lot, you know, a lot of people are joining our uh, Teams with Anarchy, and Mail Online was a good example. I mean, there's a state organization, this company was formed in 1890, <laughs> it's, uh, the, it's the Lord Rothermere is in charge of it, the fourth Lord Rothermere of his title. You expect a very conservative organization, and yet we went in there and, and uh, put anarchy in place. And what happened was programmers started joining us from around the various companies in London hmm. because they were allowed now to work in the ways they wanted to work. They were choosing languages they wanted. They could, awesome. They're a front-end developer who could also now write back-end code. They were right. allowed to do that. Uh, yeah, fighting back this whole idea of programmer as a cog in the machine. Hmm. Yeah, and they want to be the whole machine. I mean, yes. they, they, they understand that, especially the experienced developers, the ones with very conceptual skills, have that, that desire. Mm -hmm. And they're pigeonholed in organizations that get really frustrated. And they were joining us, taking, frankly, salary cuts, commuting long distances, to have an opportunity to work in a style they chose, chose to work in. And I found this true as my, in a new company in, uh, we, we have in California, the startup, Outpace. Uh, I'm reaching out to co former colleagues all across the country, and they're saying, oh, yeah, we'd love to come join you. Right. Uh, because we're doing some very cool things that they're not allowed to do in their current jobs. It's always baffling to me. It's like, no, 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 that's too cool for us to do here. We don't want that. I, you know, anarchy, in, in, on one end, will turn out to be a fabulous recruiting tool. Yeah, um, sure. As, as uh, say, picking you know, edge technology like closure these days. It's yep. sort of saying we're going to be a closure shop. It's like, yeah, it's going to scare a lot of guys off, but the guys that come and find you, oh, my goodness, they're yep. amazing. They're going to be great. Well, I also think we're, we're getting to a place here where the individual developer is so productive. Given a self-directed team, you know, and that sense of autonomy and opportunity to, to master, that small team produces so much more useful product in a given chunk of time than any regimented group. And I, I think we've got to give credit to the cloud community as well because yeah. they've given us a way to deploy rapidly as yes. well. I mean, yeah. deployment was, I was writing code like crazy and really fast, but then I'm, I'm six-month gate. I can't yeah. get feedback because I can't get it deployed. Right. right. When we cracked that nut with the cloud guys, and, and they did amazing things with certainly amazing. Amazon's, you know, five minutes, I got a machine up. Yeah. Um, I now have feedback mechanisms. I got real feedback. And now I can start dropping processes that were put in place when I was building gigantic systems. Right. Yep. Yeah, so that very, very fast feedback becomes the key part of making all this work. Yes. Uh, I, again, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to try something. If the cost for trying something and failing is very low, I'll keep trying it. Yep. So, Fred, what's next for you? What's on your to-do list? Retirement, one of these days. You know. <laughs> oh, I thought on. you were retired. You look like you're just goofing around. Yes. Uh, well, yeah. Retire. That's what they think when I go to conferences. Um, you know, I, I think uh, I'm trying to get a lot of this stuff exposed to a larger audience. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's one thing to run Anarchy in a startup in London, a small yeah. startup doing uh, Google advertising. You know, certainly not something else to bring into a mail online existing organization and make the changes. Mm-hmm. Well, with the, my uh, company in California, they give me basically a pathway into Fortune 100 companies yes. right. CEO, at the CEO level to basically do work for those guys and come in with a style of working that is going to, frankly, stun their IT shops. And so I think my, uh, you know, my sort of final hurrah in this life is going to be going to Fortune 100 companies and just uh, screw with their minds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that'll be my last satisfaction. So, yeah. Nice. Awesome. Uh, Fred, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey, thank you for the conversation. Fred George, ladies and gentlemen. Fred George. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
Net Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.